You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, March 19th, 2014, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. Evan Bernstein. Evening, folks. And we have a special guest rogue this week, Brian <gasps> Brushwood. Brian, welcome back to the Skeptic's Guide. Oh, Hello. hell's Brian. yes, dude. I'm so excited to be here, man. <laughs> Aww, so excitable. <laughs> I, wa- I want to thank Jay. Like, I, originally, we were going we were gonna to do this to promote hacking the system <laughs> on Nat Geo, but then uh, because I was a dumbass and waited too long, it was like too late. Uh, but now, now I just get to hang out with you guys, and I don't have any agenda at all, which is even better. Brian, I, I wanted to tell you, I watched the show, <laughs> and I loved it. And I thought you were awesome. I mean, it was really, you're a natural on camera because, of course, you've been doing it for a long time. And because and you know, of the spiky it. hair. Come on. Let's no, he didn't. He didn't have his traditional spiky oh, really? hair on the show. Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny because, like, for the last year, everyone's been asking, like, hey, man, why aren't you spiking your hair? Why do you, why are you wearing that sellout haircut? Sellout. And I'm like, because I'm selling sellout. out to the man. <laughs> Duh. Nice. Sellout. I, I'll tell you, I'm really, I'm really thrilled to hear that. And, uh, I, I expected to be proud to, to have made a thing that made it to television. I did not expect to actually like, what came out of the entire pro- process. Cause as you guys well know, all of television is made of compromise and everyone throws their own two bits into, you know, what, what you ought to do and throw this in there. And sometimes things become monstrosities. And I'm thrilled that for however we did it, hacking the system threaded that stone needle and came out, uh, you know, as watchable on the other side. Watchable is good. Great. Wow. <laughs> Dynamite. We do have a, an interesting interview coming up with Joe Anderson, who is an actual commercial airline pilot who's going to straighten us out. About the whole Malaysian air kerfuffle. First of all, happy birthday <laughs> to Ulug Beg. Ulug Beg. Ulug Beg. Had he lived past the time that he died until the present day, he would be 620 years old today. Happy so happy birthday, birthday Ulug Beg. Mm-hmm. Beg was one of the best known astronomers of the 15th century. So yeah, he, uh, Ulag Beg, uh, his real name was much longer than that. And I will butcher it right now for your amusement. Uh, Mirza Mohammed Tarage bin Shah but he is better known as Ulag Beg. He was an astronomer, a scientist, a mathematician, and also a governor. He was the descendant of a great conqueror who turned out to not be very good at politics himself. Uh, politics ultimately led to his downfall when he was killed by his own son. It was a whole mess. He tried to invade his nephew's territory and it was just a, it was a giant mess. It's unfortunate. He should have stuck to science because he was actually brilliant at that. In terms of mathematics, he's best known for creating uh, incredibly accurate trigonometric tables of sine and tangent values. And he calculated those values to, at the minimum, eight decimal points. He also uh, had an incredibly huge observatory that rivaled uh, Tycho Brahe's observatory. Um, unfortunately, it was destroyed after operating for about 30 years and eventually covered completely by dirt. So it wasn't until much later that it was excavated. 
but the measurements that he took were actually more accurate than many measurements taken later by people like Copernicus and Tycho Brahe. So Ulog Beg, he was a really great scientist, terrible politician, all around fascinating guy. Like imagine if our most famous astronomer, let's say Neil deGrasse Tyson or Phil Plate, also led great armies uh, to death. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it just doesn't, it doesn't happen that way anymore, which is probably for the best, but I, also, I could see Neil doing that. Totally. I could see it happening. I could see Phil doing <laughs> hey, it. Can more you than imagine Neil. the speech he would give right before everybody? Joined, it would be you know, inspiring with the blue yeah. woad on his face and everything. Yeah, <laughs> St. Crispin's day <laughs> from, from the bridge of his starship. He, he tells everyone to go. Right. To <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, it's also, you have, you have to you know, remember that at this time in history, the uh, Arab world in Persia and Arabia basically led the world in math and astronomy and science yep. and medicine. They they bridged the time between the ancient world and the Renaissance, you know, in Europe. Yep. Exactly. All right. Have you guys heard of the guy who uh, came out of a coma with psychic powers? Unfortunately, How does this yes. joke end? That is the plot of the 1983 Stephen King movie, The Dead Zone. Yep. Right. If you guys recall that, not a bad movie. Christopher Walken. Yeah, Christopher Walken. You know, how bad could it be? Paranormal belief often follows uh, movie themes and, and science fiction themes. We've talked about this before. There's kind I of this wonder interplay. Why. Yeah, there's this interplay between culture and paranormal belief, and they kind of feed off of each other. There's a story going around of a 23-year-old South End student named Rob Ball, uh, who was in a – after a traumatic injury, was in a coma – for a couple of weeks, and he says that after he came out of the coma, that he started hearing voices in his head telling him things about other people that apparently have been coming true. There's an old Norm MacDonald bit about uh, a guy hearing the voice of Satan in his head, and it's like, kill all your family and put them in a duffel bag. So I'm wondering, I, like, I hate when is that, that part of the voice in his head? Or Man, so far it sounds like a hilarious it actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't wait to hear it that. Kills. Yeah. It kills. It kills. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. So first of all, he had pretty extensive brain injury and uh, he needed extensive rehab, including you know physical rehab just to be able to walk again. According what part to of his brain, Steve? The uh, It said the temporal lobe didn't tell me which side, though. In the reports that I read, again, I don't have access to his medical records. I'm just going on the, the the lay press. He also had pathological deja vu. Whoa, pathological! Partic yeah, particularly interesting. Uh, and you know, of course, deja vu is the sense of familiarity for something that you've never experienced before. So you're in a you're in a location. You think that you've been there before. You're experiencing something, and as you're experiencing it, it feels like it's happened before. And that is caused by a an inappropriate sense of familiarity. So, you know, there's a part of your brain that evaluates what you're experiencing and tells you if it's something that matches a memory that you have, if it's something that you that you remember or that you're familiar with. Yeah, but wait, Steve, but when you have deja vu, it actually feels weird. Yeah, I mean, it feels a little weird because it's not a real memory, but you have this disconnected sensation of familiarity for something that you're experiencing as opposed to something that's a memory. That's why it feels weird. Because okay. it's, it's an abnormal, you know, you or it's, so. it's a little errant circuit in your brain that's not, you're not part of your everyday experience. But some people have it pathologically, you know, they, they can have it all the time. So he was getting it, you know, really profound deja vu all the time. 
And that could plausibly be due to brain damage, you know, especially um, involving memory circuits, uh, which kind of fits the, you know, again, the vague description of his injuries that, that I was uh, able to find. Uh, and I'm talking about this because it's probably relevant to the other half where he then started hearing voices and these voices were, were giving him messages predicting illness, love and death. People were shocked that these vo- these voices giving him predictions were giving them personal details. Uh, and that, that pre- these predictions were coming true. That part is easy enough to explain. That's, that's, she's just doing a cold reading. Cold readings are mostly done by the people receiving the reading, right? Not the person giving the reading. They're the ones who are making the matches. He's probably, could be totally earnest. He's hearing these voices. He's not, you know, it seems to him that they're coming from somewhere outside of himself. The error there is, I mean, the neurological deficit there is probably, and it could be different in different people, but, you know, we all have thoughts inside of our head, but we know that they're thoughts, you know, that we don't think of them as voices. Uh, it's possible that Part of what tells us that this is a thought and not a voice is our reality testing circuitry. You know, we do have part of our frontal lobes which tell us if things are real or not. All of this also is probably important in distinguishing experiences from memories. An interesting side to all of this is that, like, if you do an fMRI, look at somebody's brain activity of you looking at a picture and then remembering the picture, they light up the same. Yeah, those are the the mirror neurons, right? Like visualizing an activity is the same as trying to do the activity. Yeah, well, it's not exactly mirror neurons, but it's similar. It's a similar concept. But what I was just referring to were just visual cortex neurons. Uh, but they, um, but yeah, they they, and it's not doing an activity. It's just the image, the sight of seeing something is the same as you're remembering what that sight. The same neurons light up. So how do you know? If you are remembering something or just experiencing it actively live, you know, so obviously our brain had to develop some kind of mechanism to let you know when you're remembering something versus experiencing it live. So anyway, so deja vu may be a flaw in that evaluation process. Then both of those things, deja vu and hearing voices may, may both be due to a, an error in reality testing circuitry. So a very plausible hypothesis for Mr. Ball is that whatever brain injury he had damaged those circuits, and now he's having both pathological deja vu and he's hearing voices. Um, and in fact, I just blogged a couple of weeks ago about an article by a psychologist, Philip Garans, where he hypothesizes that both of those things are due to errors in, in reality testing circuitry. That's, I think, a plausible explanation for what he's experiencing. What's interesting is that he's interpreting it as a psychic experience. And that's where the inadvertent cold reading, you know, comes in and, you know, the lack of critical thinking. What's interesting also is that I found, I, I looked at, at the, um, I did a literature search just to see if is there anything published about people being psychic or, you know, feeling like they have psychic abilities after having a head injury. I did find one, re, one report where an author claimed, um, that two thirds of people who believe they have extrasensory ability have a history of brain injury. So there you go. I was going to oh, ask that. So yeah, a lot, uh, you know, maybe the, the big end hucksters are still full of it, but a lot of these people legitimately think that they do have something because they're experiencing something odd neurologically. Yeah. That's, that certainly is a plausible hypothesis. And there is some data, you know, including these specific cases, uh, to suggest that, that some people who come to believe that they have, that they have paranormal abilities, 
are it's 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 some actual damage to their brain circuitry that keeps them from being able to critically evaluate and reality test certain experiences that they're having or that's giving them unusual neurological experiences what's also interesting is that most of the time if you're having an unusual neurological experience because there's damage to your brain or just your brain is malfunctioning in some way you usually interpret that as a real external experience and not as a problem with your brain function. It sounds like it's almost like a feedback loop, like uh, you have something happen to your brain, so you subjectively hear voices or you essentially have some kind of random noise generation happening in your brain. So you output that random noise, and then at that point, a different system, uh, i.e. how you interact with other people, interprets that, that scattershot noise, that shotgunning, uh, and if you get lucky and happen to say a bunch of things that turn out to be right, it becomes this feedback loop where they feed you back where like you are definitely having psychic powers and so on. And yeah, so then there's the cultural belief element that gets overlaid on top of it. You, there's a tendency to interpret that as a real experience, partly because the circuitry that's injured is the exact circuitry you would need in order to be able to detect that your brain's not working properly. You know what I mean? You can't get outside of yourself and understand that this is an internal flaw. Uh, people have to rationalize it in some way. I mean, so this is how they're going to go about doing it. It it makes sense to them, and you know, without without having to uh, dig into the weeds too deep. And and I would imagine that it, it takes an astonishingly few number of hits before it just becomes obvious to you that this is the truth. As little as one, I would imagine. You know, one one apparently dramatic hit would probably be enough to convince most people that there's something going on. You know, that it's not just coincidence because we we're not we're really poor at deciding when something is just a coincidence or not. Stephen, did you happen to read Incognito by David Eagleman? Oh, that sounds familiar, but I, I don't. It's a uh, it. I mean, it's a book about the brain, but in it, it he makes the case that um, what we perceive as the conscious, the guy in charge, is really just like a child king. Like everything that's all the systems that are running are run by more competent, specialized parts of the brain. But this uh, subjective sense that that we're in charge is just a cognitive illusion. And that, um, you know, he mentioned some split brain uh, experiments yeah, where yeah, yeah. they feed they feed a directive to one half of the brain. And so the body gets up and leaves because that's what the command was. And then they're like, why are you leaving? And then he's like, um, because I need to go pee. That's what's going on. And it's like this rash, this constant rationalization over. Oh the yeah. After the fact. also known as the monkey riding on the back of the tiger. Yes, I always liked that metaphor. <laughs> that, yeah, it's a very deep question you're asking about the nature of consciousness. You know, I mean, I just, I just, I just wonder how much of that plays into this kind of thing because if you're if you're hearing voices and they happen to be right, then it's it seems like we have an uncanny ability to write a narrative that that ties everything up in a nice neat bow. No, that's definitely part of it. Is that we we try to create, as you say, the seamless narrative that gives us this illusion, although some people don't like the term illusion, um, but whatever, this, this, this sense that we have this steady stream of coherent single consciousness. But in fact, our brains are a committee all screaming at the same time, and we're just sort of seeing this net effect of all of these processes happening below our awareness. So we're not even aware of the, all the different elements necessarily that are going into our thoughts and our decision making. But there, and there isn't any one thing that's conscious. All of these things are conscious at the same time. It's just sort of an emergent property of all of the things your brain's doing at the same time. There's no one master switch, you know, that's in control of it all. At least not that anyone can find. Steve, is there any way that therapy can help these people? Yeah, absolutely. 
because the brain is plastic. It could change its wiring. So yeah, I mean, you can, uh, that's why I'm saying it's, it's important. You know, if you engage his higher level processing, you can get this sort of stuff under control. But if you reinforce it, it could be very counterproductive. Right, I have a question for you guys. Yes. John sir. Edward, victim of brain injury or an asshole? Yes. A, a douche. Asshole. <laughs> I like that answer of yes. <laughs> <laughs> Bob, I hear there's some pretty exciting news about the cosmos, and it's not the TV show. Uh-oh. Hold on to your cerebrums. This is a good one. Um, so the big <laughs> science news uh, released uh, Monday, March 17th, and I'm pretty excited about it. Some news outlets are predictably not cautious enough when they say things like, and this was a good one, cosmic inflation no longer a theory, now a fact. <laughs> Uh, some, uh, some of them focused on the wrong things, in my opinion. Like one was. Shocked. Yeah. Gravitational waves from Big Bang detected. You know, that's okay, but that's not really the, the, the most important thing, I think. Um, the bottom line, though, uh, doesn't make for a snappy title. You know, nobody would, would print something like that. So I think it would read something like, uniquely polarized cosmic microwave background light points very strongly to primordial gravity waves, which were overwhelmingly likely caused by cosmic inflation. And by the way, we can now finally scientifically study the universe much, much closer to its birth than ever before. So that about yeah, sums it up. Yeah, never be an editor. Yeah, that, yeah that, just, that sums it up. But if you guys think this is ho-hum and not too significant, here's what a Caltech theoretical physicist Sean Carroll said. Not that guy again. Yeah, this, he's, he's, he is awesome. Um, other, and he's, he's a guy that really helped me wrap my head around this. Other than finding life on other planets or directly detecting dark matter, I can't think of any other plausible near-term astrophysical discovery more important than this one for improving our understanding of the universe. It would be the biggest thing since dark energy. So this is clearly a, a big deal, if not to average Joe, like maybe the Higgs boson was, um, it lead to, to physicists and uh, other, um, you know, people that are into this sort of thing. So uh, I like right. that sliced bread has been replaced with dark energy. I like that. <laughs> it's the biggest thing since dark energy. We could call this the God expansion. Oh, no. God. And then that will make it as big as the Higgs. The Higgs <laughs> is the God <laughs> particle. This is the That's God That's already, yeah. because you uttered that, it's already caught on and is now going to be <laughs> the Or we'll, we'll yeah. call it the yeah. Shiva. Yeah. God, the Shiva no. expansion. God. Godflation. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. That's part of the, yeah. That's one of the reasons why it got so popular. But all right, you ready to dive into this? Yeah, go ahead. So the the scientists that released this news uh, deserve some serious kudos. I think uh, the, the the team was led by astronomer John Kovac of the Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. All right, first some background. Of course, uh, we all know about the Big Bang, right? That's just the opposite of a Ganab Gib, right? That's an easy yeah, one. Love that show. Um, <laughs> the, no, no. This, uh, this, <laughs> come on. This, so this theory was strengthened by uh, the Nobel-winning discovery of cosmic microwave background radiation, right? CMB for short. Um, that's a leftover heat from the Big Bang that still permeates the, uh, the universe. Um, just turn on like an old-school TV and some of the static you see on one of those weird channels, that's that's the CMB. So this light flooded the uni universe about 380,000 years after the Big B. And uh, the problem was that the uh, the CMB showed that the universe is extraordinarily similar wherever you look, and it's also incredibly flat. So uh, a vanilla Big Bang theory, though, uh, would predict that that it should be the opposite. It should be uh, heterogeneous and uh, highly curved, and it, it wasn't. So the Big Bang must be wrong then, or it needed to be modified, uh, which is what they did. So to the rescue came the idea of cosmic inflation. Now, inflation proposed that right after the Big Bang, the universe expanded to an incredible degree, degree very, very quickly. And by very quickly, I mean 10 to the minus 36th sixth of a second. 
That's uh, that's an undecillionth of a second, and don't even bother trying to imagine how tiny that is. And then it gets even more extraordinary. The patch of the universe that expanded did so exponentially, from one billion times smaller than a proton, pretty tiny, to to wow. that of, to that of a golf ball. And so that's a, a, a volume increase of ten to the eightieth power, um, which I think that's is huge. which I think is more atoms than there are in the entire universe. So that's about right. that's damn near Google, kind of. Um, so inflation predicts what we see. Great. Awesome. So the universe is homogeneous because a small area of the universe expanded um, into all of the visible universe that, that we see today. So since it was small, it was causally connected, which is why it's so similar, uh, which is very important because then that was a big problem. How could the universe, the entire universe be so similar in temperature unless they were there was some causal connection? But the only way that could have happened is if light was, uh, you know, if uh, these if the heat transferred like a hundred times faster than the speed of light, and that couldn't have happened. Um, it, mm. So we, the reason why it's so it's so similar is because you, only this tiny patch, which is already already causally connected, that small patch is what expanded. And it's also very nearly flat because, and for an analogy, it's even though the world is round, your hometown seems pretty flat because it's such a tiny part of the world that you know, from your perspective, has expanded like it, like just like it went through inflation itself. So the thing is, how do we learn about what happened during inflation if the cosmic microwave background radiation uh, occurred more than a quarter million years later? You know, how much can we really learn? Gravity waves. <laughs> so, um, just, I'm just guessing. Yeah, yeah, all right. <laughs> so, so even though the visible universe was all smoothed out and nice, um, there had to be some perturbations going on, kind of what, overlaid on that. What does and that so, mean? What is thank, that you, thank you, quantum mechanics. What is that word, Bob? Perturbations. The disturbances, uh, like the yeah, little disturbance wacky of the things. force. Yeah. yeah. Uh, little wacky in the force. things. Okay, why do you just say little <laughs> <Yes>. wacky things? <laughs> <laughs> like your ducky bobbing on the on the water in your bath, Jay. Does that it's make it clear? what you call it? Oh, now it's so clear to me now. Thanks, Steve. <laughs> All right. Pay attention now. So the two types of these huh. uh, per- perturbations that we should see are one from the fluctuating in- inflation field itself, which caused this whole mess. And we don't even know what the hell that really is and why it started or why it stopped. But that's one, that's one of these perturbations. The other one is the fluctuating gravitation field itself. So those are things that we can kind of grab onto and, and learn about and teach us about what was going on back then. So perturbations in the fluctuating inflation. Yeah. And the fluctuating <laughs> gravitation field. Yeah. So, so the inflation field. Now the inflation field, this one's kind of easy, although it's very mysterious. It caused the tiny differences in the density of the plasma itself, the density waves. So that's what you see. We've all seen that cosmic microwave background image, you know, that oval image with all the different colors. That's that you're looking. You're looking at the result of the inflation field, the, the fluctuations in that field. So these these are differences in density, differences in temperatures, and they they're actually the seeds that cause the structure that we see today: galaxies, clusters, superclusters, and even webs at, at its largest scale. So number two, the fluctuating gravitational field, on the other hand, theory predicts that that caused gravitational waves that propagate at the speed of light. So we've got these two different things, two perturbations. One causes density waves, which is temperature differences. The other one is is the fluctuating gravitational field, and that causes gravitational waves, okay? Now, cosmic inflation directly predicts these gravitational waves, or as as they call it, cosmic gravitational wave background. The CGB, I like that one. So, but how do we distinguish them from the density waves? That's incredibly important. And the answer is, of course, polarization, right? So, 
So both, <laughs> so both types of waves polarize the light, which is what the CM, the CMB radiation is, right? It's, it's just light. So the inflation field and the gravitational field polarize the light. Now, polarized light has its electric and magnetic fields oriented in a specific way, right? Instead of randomly, like in any direction, like from a light bulb, they're oriented in a specific way. And that's why polarized lens are so great because it cuts down on the glare. It's polarizing the light to so only one orientation is getting through to your eyes like so, in your sunglasses jay <laughs> so so jay the, the key bit of information <laughs> now this is important don't don't let me lose you I, I probably already did but the key bit of information now is that the gravitational waves polarize the light in a very specific way and it's called b mode polarization and i won't say that word anymore so all that means is that the fields making up the light or are oriented in a twisted or a curled pattern. So imagine taking matchsticks and laying them down end to end to form a circle, okay? And then you rotate each matchstick clockwise just a little bit, and you've got that pattern, that curly, twisted pattern. That's the pattern, and that's the pattern of polarized light that these scientists found in the cosmic microwave background radiation. So this means many things. Uh, first of all, these patterns can be produced by gravitational waves, and these scientists spent three years ruling out other causes, like, for example, gravitational lensing. Inflation predicts these primordial gravitational waves. And if we're confident that that's what we found, we can also be confident that um, that inflation is responsible. And in fact, they're so confident. I've, I've heard talk of five, five sigma, which is pretty much a scientific Ooh. gold standard. I mean, first I heard three. Another article said five. Um, either way, that's that's pretty impressive. So, of course, we need verification, and uh, nothing is definite. It, it, it looks incredibly good at this point, and we'll be getting uh, verification very soon from other experiments and from other scientists. Another quick uh, potential ramification, um, Andre Lind uh, is a famous physicist. He actually is one of the main authors of inflation. He thinks that this advance, this discovery, actually supports the idea that our universe is just one bubble in a a multiverse of bubble universes. That so would be why, cool. I like that. So that would be awesome. So all right, we're heading to, we're heading to the home stretch here. So it looks real good that cosmic inflation really happened. The other big takeaway from this though, maybe even bigger, is the fact that this discovery opens up a whole new window to science about the beginning of the universe. Now before this, what we knew about the birth of the universe was what happened 380,000 years after it happened uh, with the cosmic microwave background radi radiation. Uh, that plus also what we know about uh, primordial nucleosynthesis, which is the crafting of uh, the basic elements, that happened you know maybe one second after the Big Bang. So now we can scientifically, empirically investigate what happened uh, 10 to the minus 35 seconds after everything was created. Now, you may say that's only, you know, it's only a second. What's, what's the, it's not a big deal, but this period was so hot and so dense that, uh, you had, inc you had incredible universe changing things happening in that very, very brief period of time. And now we have the tools to see uh, how some of that happened. If you watch one video on YouTube this year, it uh, should be uh -huh. Andre Lynn being told that his life's work has just been confirmed. It is like a mega science cry. It's amazing. Like mm -hmm. the, um, one of the, uh, assistant professors who worked on this, uh, theory went and told Lind, like knocked on his door at home to tell him the results of their experiment. 
without giving him any notice what he was doing there. And he looks like he's about to cry. And his wife is also a physicist and immediately knows like what the guy is there for and just like gives him a big hug. And it's the feels, my feels exploded. (laughs) That's awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, he's great. Rebecca, tell me why I should start putting the SGU podcast into 24-bit 192 kilohertz. Uh, Well, you shouldn't. Why not? So it's better. There. The numbers are bigger. But This is something I thought might be fun to talk about, considering that this is a podcast, and so we do deal with uh, audio stuff, and we I know we have a lot of listeners who are audio experts, files. and some who might consider themselves audiophiles. I hesitate to use that word for anybody, because I feel like, maybe just in skeptic circles, but I feel like it's become really tainted with this idea of pseudoscience. Like, when I think audiophile now, I think of somebody who pays $300 for a you monster, monster cable. cables. Yeah. Speakers, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, the latest audiophile news is Neil Young the amazing musician who I'm sure we all know and love. Not in Alabama, though, for some reason. What? Not, is he not oh, in he, Alabama? Oh, he, he's not well-liked in Alabama. <laughs> they wrote a song about it. Alabama Southern wrote Man. a song dissing Neil Young. Really? No, I, well, is this they like did a it because Neil Young Sweet Home Alabama. That's an anti-Neil Young song? mentioned by name. Oh, yeah. Neil Young will remember. Yeah. Because Neil Young wrote this song that they didn't like about Southern, Southern Man. Man. Oh, yeah. my God. I had no idea that there was like a, an East Coast, West Coast beef between Neil <laughs> Young and that Sweet Home Alabama, Alabama was written as a response to, yeah. Okay. So, anyway. Anyway. <laughs> Neil Young has, uh, he started a Kickstarter for what is essentially a high end iPod called Pono, a Pono player. And Pono is there's they have this um, this portable oh, no. music player, and also it's going to be a an online store like the iTunes Store or what the have you. iTunes, the iTunes, <laughs> as your grandparents might call it. <laughs> uh, only instead of playing. Um, mp3s uh you know this new player can play mp3s but it's uh really a big part of it is promoting something that neil young has been trying to get going for several years now and he's not the only one there are several audiophiles behind this idea that uh current mp3s are too poor quality and that to really experience music we should switch from uh so what mp3s are right now tend to be uh 16-bit and 44.1 kilohertz in fact that's what we're recording at right this instant neil young and others want to make the switch to what they say would be a higher quality uh, sound 24-bit and 192 kilohertz and they think that this is you know, demonstrably better. I mean, the, as Steve says, the numbers are bigger. So <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? It's not golf. Well, so. Other numbers yeah. get bigger too, like your file size. 
Yeah, that's, that is one issue is that your, your file size is greatly increased. So you can't hold as much stuff. And so when it comes to the actual player that they're selling, I should mention that this Kickstarter has been wildly popular. They asked for $800,000 and right now they have 26 days to go, but they are at 4.2 million dollars. Oh my god. Uh, yeah. So they've definitely made it and then some. So people are really interested in this. Um, out, about the player itself, there are many things about it that do sound like, you know, it, it would be a higher quality sound than your typical iPod, like a, a better noise floor. You know, there, there are all these little things that go into this that, that could make it a better sound. So, but I won't be really talking about that because the, the pseudoscience of this is actually in what they are promoting the idea of this playback format of six, of 24 bit, 192 kilohertz as being, uh, superior. That's where there are some issues. And a lot of this, I should mention that I am not an audio engineer. Um, so a lot of this comes from me reading from people who are experts. And one of the best overviews that I found is Monty Montgomery at ziph.org, xiph.org. And we'll have a link in the notes page. He goes through exactly why it's pointless and sometimes detrimental to have uh, a music file that is 24 bits, 192 kilohertz, as opposed to what we currently use, 16 bits, 44.1 kilohertz. Uh, definitely go read it because it goes into a lot more detail than I'll get into here. I'll just talk about a few of the highlights. Um, so one of the biggest problems is that the human ear can hear on a spectrum from about 20 hertz to 20 kilohertz. And that's a a very broad spectrum. And in practice, that goes, it's very generous. It goes beyond what, you know, lots of people can actually hear, but it, it definitely encompasses all of human hearing. Uh, and you can think of it in the same way that you might think about the spectrum of visible light that we can see and how things like ultraviolet or microwaves, infrared, these are outside of the spectrum that the human eye can perceive. Um, so in the same way, there are quote unquote sounds that fall outside of the spectrum that the human ear is physically capable of hearing. So anything below 20 hertz or above 20 kilohertz. So when you talk about music that goes to 192 kilohertz, you can see how that's a much larger number than 20 kilohertz. And you're literally talking about ultrasonic frequencies that the human ear cannot perceive. And this isn't something that is just proven by these facts, these numbers, but in actual tests and scientific studies that have been done, double-blinded tests, People are unable to tell when they're listening to something with 192 kilohertz and when they're listening to something with, say, 44 kilohertz. Uh, because Doesn't that kind of end it right there? I mean, for me, it does. You would think. <laughs> but there are people who think – there are audiophiles who think that there are people with, quote-unquote, golden ears – with this, ah. this, this practiced ability or maybe inherited ability. I'm not really sure. Maybe both. Um, to somehow 
detect these sounds where the common man can't. Uh, it's just not true, though. It would be like saying uh, that there is a person out there with golden eyes who can see X-rays or infrared. That term actually like bird does. is in the you know world of live music. Um, you know, having golden ears actually means that you're good at identifying frequencies and as a, you know for sound reinforcement. There is a natural ability and a trained level that you can get to where you can recognize different things and be very quick at understanding what what problems are and hearing you know things that most people wouldn't even be able to focus on but that doesn't mean i think that those people would be able to um perceive a difference in this music either it's just more of a training that you would get um, right so and that's that's something that montgomery goes into he talks a bit about how there are people who can hear better uh there are you know younger ears are better at hearing uh you know before your uh, your ear stiffens up inside, so to speak, and, and you, you can't hear the, the same range of frequencies anymore once you get older. Um, and there are also people who through their jobs, just through training can, yeah, identify certain tones and frequencies and, uh, tell the difference between certain formats of sound. Uh, but there's also a lot of pseudoscience in this idea because there are people who take it way beyond what is actually the limits of human hearing. And that includes, you know, these golden ears being able to hear things that the human ear just unfortunately physically cannot hear. And to make matters even worse, 192 kilohertz isn't just useless when it comes to audio, but it can actually be detrimental to what we're hearing. Um, it can cause, it can, it can basically hurt the fidelity. It can cause these artifacts that pop up into our audible hearing range. So when you encode something at that high of a frequency, basically it has this ripple effect where, uh, if your system cannot play those frequencies, which most can't, then it will interpret in certain ways that will, uh, negatively affect what you actually are hearing. So it's not just that 192 kilohertz is useless, it's actually bad. Just to clarify a bit, because I have been doing a lot of reading about this also. So we're talking about the frequency of sound. Again, the upper limit of, of uh, what human frequencies that we can hear is about 20 kilohertz, or 20,000 cycles per second. The sampling rate, you know, is how frequently the digital audio is sampling the different sounds. And so obviously the sampling rate has to be at least as fast as a frequency that you want to detect. But actually what I read is that if the sampling rate is twice that of the bandwidth, bandwidth being the range of frequencies, so up 20 to 20,000 hertz, then that's all you need in order to be able to reproduce 100% of the audio information. So 44.1 kilohertz is actually perfect. It's it's all we need in order to, to perfectly cover, to, with 100% of the information, the bandwidth of human auditory range. When it comes to 24 bits versus what we use now, 16 bits, Montgomery and others point out that it's not necessarily going to be detrimental like 192 kilohertz, but it is useless and it does increase file size because as of right now, uh, and, and well into 
the foreseeable future, and Montgomery says forever, 16 bits is more than enough to store everything that the human ear can actually hear. And I'll read directly. I, I really like this quote from Montgomery. He says, it's also worth mentioning that increasing the bit depth of the audio representation from 16 to 24 bits does not increase the perceptible resolution or fineness of the audio. It only increases the dynamic range, the range between the softest possible and the loudest possible sound by lowering the noise floor. However, a 16-bit noise floor is already below what we can hear. So he argues that uh, it's perfectly good to record and edit at these higher levels because it gives you a broader range of sounds to work with. Um, so, for instance, you don't have noises getting too loud and clipping. You have a lower noise floor. It gives you a larger margin of error. But when it comes to playback, there's absolutely no way at this point that you can do any better than what we currently have, 16-bit, 44.1 kilohertz. I mean, I mean, it sounds almost like this is what's taking the the audio world into the world of wine, in which case the unwashed masses, you know, when we experience mm-hmm. uh, music, there's all kinds of subjective things. There are people who intentionally add limiters that, that, that add the artifacts of compression or make it sound like you're clipping artificially just so that the music at live events will sound louder to everyone because yeah. it sounds like speakers are bursting. Uh, likewise, you know, with wine, you got the unwashed masses who are drinking two buck chuck and not knowing the difference in, <laughs> in blind taste tests. But you have these sommeliers who insist that they could detect notes of X, Y, or Z and that's why it's better. And then they give a review to it. I mean, is that, is that the world we're in and that a, a elite few will dictate what is quote unquote good. I think that is absolutely yeah. a great metaphor. Yeah. I, I, I think it's exactly that because when you look at the research for both wine and audio, you see the same thing mm-hmm. when the participants in a study are blinded, they can't tell the difference. It's all about what they perceive, you know, what, what they think they're hearing or what they think they're tasting. So, Jay, I hear that uh, Kevin Trudeau is going to have some new digs. Yeah, this is a short but sweet news item. Finally, uh, the trial is over and Kevin Trudeau was sentenced to 10 years. Uh, in the criminal con- yep. For a criminal contempt case. He was in defiance of paying $37, a $37 million fine. So, U.S. District Judge Ronald Guzman from Chicago on Monday just was not, not going to have it. I literally saw one of Kevin Trudeau's commercials on TV over the weekend. So wait, as the trial's happening, he's still running infomercials? Absolutely, yeah, he is. It. Yes, he and, is. And Steve and I were laughing about this particular thing. The His defense, you know, when, they're get, when they get to sentencing, they're talking to the judge and they're basically like just saying, please give my client the least amount of years that you can because of X. And one of the reasons they came up with was um, those without shit, sin shall cast the first stone like Oh. Yeah, they basically Bible were allegory. quoting Bible platitudes. Yeah, they were saying things like, hey, we're all human. You know, we all make Meh. mistakes. You know, come on. Yeah, who hasn't yeah. defrauded millions of dollars? Let's not argue. But listen, this guy's a career con artist. He's well, been and, doing and that's this- what it sounds like is that is that he angered the court by his constant defiance. The fact that yeah. he kept flouting the, the, the judgments against him. He'll probably only serve five and then be out again. Yeah. The real terror that he did here was that he misinformed people and they made poor health decisions. Yeah, no, that is truly nasty. Okay, but he's in jail for at least a little while. Thanks, Jay. All right, guys, we have to take a break from our show to talk about our sponsor this week. 
personal capital. Guys, are you aware that there are two basic problems on how people manage their money? Only I didn't two? Know this. Only two. One, it's hard to keep track of. You've got stocks, 401k, IRA, bank accounts, etc., all on different sites with their own usernames and passwords. Oh my god. Two, you gotta pay someone to manage it, and you're probably paying too much. Yeah, that's why I like personal capital. You, cause you can see your whole net worth, all three or four dollars, and how each asset is performing on one screen. On your computer, your phone, your tablet, whatever, with clean, color-coded graphs. Then, Rebecca, it shows you how much you're paying in money managers and fees and how you can reduce those fees on your $4. It also You also get specific advice on how to improve your investment strategy. And the best part, it's free. Personal capital is a smart way to make your money grow quicker, guys. That's why they've been featured in Time and in Forbes and in Bloomberg and and quite a few others. Um, so to set up your free account, go to personalcapital.com forward slash SGU. Getting your account set up just takes a few minutes and it's free. So you must go to personalcapital.com forward slash SGU. All right, guys. Thanks. Let's get back to our show. All right, Evan, get us up to date on Who's That Noisy? Okay, here we go. Let's play for you. Last week's Who's That Noisy? Here we go. The attempt of inflation is to explain this by assuming that if there were very small well, irregularities when the universe was small, that because of this exponential expansion, it would smooth the universe out to the kind of regularity that we see now. That's Bob Novella. I just heard him say that. That's, I know. He was just reporting that's on that. That's very- total nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell is he talking about? <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, the... Uh, Incomparable and uh, wonderful Sir Roger Penrose, English mathematical physicist, mathematician, philosopher of science. Indubitably. He, uh, he and Escher apparently uh, had some uh, communications and so forth in the 1950s and uh, came up with something called the Penrose Triangle. Are you guys familiar with that? So that's yeah, that, that was the most yeah. difficult detective case. That it's got three sides, right? Impossibility in its purest form, as it was once described. One, the name that was drawn for the uh, winner of this week, his name is Roland Young, and I want to read to you Roland Young from Oxford, United Kingdom. He says, this sounds like Professor Sir Roger Penrose. I hope so. He works in my department, and I've heard his voice often enough. Awesome. Nice. That's awesome. <laughs> no fair. <laughs> Rowan. No, that's just awesome. If you can, if you work with the person that's, that's on the, you know, that's on it, more power to you. That's great. Now, now, Brian, didn't, didn't we come to know you through us having featured you on a Who's That Noisy? Yeah, just out of nowhere, my Twitter exploded with like, you're that, who's that noisy? And, uh, because uh, I had, you know, before I ever did scam school or, or anything that people could find online or certainly on television, I did a uh, skeptical lecture at colleges called uh scam sasquatch and the supernatural mm-hmm. that uh still exists on youtube to this day so you can see i've watched it. a ridiculous 20 something year old kid with spiky hair pretend like he knows something about science <laughs> no Aww. you did you did really well in that i mean i watched it and it's like dead on right on right on so you did a really nice job so congratulations roland you're this week's winner how about i play this week's brand new fresh off the presses who's that noisy and uh, and also, you have to keep in mind that more that Jimmy Carter saw a UFO, and also that more people in this country uh, uh, have seen UFOs, and I think approve of George Bush's presidency. Sounds like a smart guy. 
<laughs> yes, yes, very, very, very on top of things. He knows, he knows. Jimmy Carter also joined us. Um, <laughs> did you know that, Brian? We had Jimmy Carter on our show. We did have Jimmy. Carter wait, on. wait, for reals? Yeah, yeah. For real. Oh my god, dude! I laughed because that was so outrageously awesome. I couldn't believe it, but now I'm blown away. That's amazing. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, so if you know uh, that voice, go ahead and let us know so that you can give us your guess. Uh, WTN at theskepticsguide.org is the email address. And I believe our uh, forums are back up and running again. Is that right, gentlemen? Yes, they are. Excellent. So this week, I apologize, was not able to get it up last week due to some technical difficulties. Whoa! But we're, oh, boy. We're, we're back. Back on the forums, SGUforums.com. We'll be playing the game there as well. Give us your best guess. Good luck, everyone. Thanks a lot, Evan. All right. We're going to do two emails this week. They're both corrections. The second one we're actually going to do we're going is about uh, the Malaysian Airlines, but we're going to get an airline pilot on to talk to us about that. But first, I have to make a second correct, correction to the whole cartouche hubbub. Guys, remember the whole cartouche thing? I do. Yeah. All right. This one comes from Joseph Gagne from Quebec, and Joseph writes, I am a historian currently working on uh, his PhD at Laval University in Quebec City. On last week's podcast, March 1st, Stephen mentioned that the term cartouche is derived from the French word for a gun cartridge. This immediately sounded alarm bells in my head. Not only am I a native French speaker, but I also regularly come across the word cartouche in my pre-Napoleonic research. Now, what the hell does he know? True, cartouche <laughs> is a homonym for a cartridge. However, it has also been a long-established term since 1543 describing an ornament or drawing representing a royal crest or coat of arms. These are most often seen on maps, not only denoting a crest, but sometimes a detail of a cityscape. And the term naturally has been expanded to describe the royal Egyptian inscriptions found within hieroglyphs. In fact, this definition precedes that of a gun cartridge in the dictionary. Through the words pre-existing etymology, I conclude that the soldier story is highly unlikely. So where does the story originate? I can't be sure, but I will point out that Wikipedia cartouche article refers to John Manship White's Everyday Life in Ancient Egypt. A quick read through Amazon's user reviews reveals that the book was originally written in 1970 and sadly relies on many sources that are full of errors. Okay, so... There was the whole cartouche cartridge thing when we originally talked about this story. And then I clarified that the, the German article that was translated into English, they actually translated the word cartouche into cartridge when in fact they should have just left it as cartouche, which means the, you know, the oval. The nameplate of the. Yeah, the, yeah it's basically a royal nameplate. It's like that yeah. oval container with the, with the hieroglyphs inside of it. And, you know, as is usual when I'm doing a correction, I try to make sure I, you know, I really do the research because I hate doing double corrections, but I, I have to do it this time. So my Google foo failed on, in this case because <laughs> as deep as I looked into this issue, every reference I found told the gun cartridge story that Napoleon soldiers saw the cartouches. They thought it looked like their cartridge. So they started calling it that. When I got this email from Joseph, I, I said, okay, I, I, that sounds, what you're telling me sounds right. But I went back and I again did a search knowing the right answer, you know, or, or what the answer that, that Joseph was giving me. I still can't find a reference that backs up what he says. Every reference I find, including ancient Egypt online and multiple etymology and dictionary resources, Princeton.edu, an academic source, Everybody that I can find, even now online, tells the French gun cartridge story as the origin 
of the word cartouche. But what Joseph says is also correct in that the word cartouche does mean like a royal nameplate. And that can't be a coincidence, you know, mm-hmm. that, and that word does go back to like the 1500s, 1600s. So it's, it predates gun cartridges and Napoleon's, you know, invasion of Egypt. So I think he's correct that that's probably apocryphal. The story of the gun cartridges is probably a myth, but it is really persistent. Joseph and it, we, I went back and forth with Joseph and gave me some references. Come on, I got to get this, you know, definitive now if we're going to do another bite at this, at this issue. And he, he, he also said that another point here, I don't know how definitive this is, but it's interesting that the word cartouche meaning cartridge is feminine in the French, but the word cartouche meaning a royal crest is masculine. And therefore they're not even the same word. Is mm. what he was saying, mm. even though they're a hominid. They must can, have a different. Can, can I just say for the record, like I get annoyed when people propose alternate solutions for the puzzles we do on Scam School. <laughs> you guys have like some next level trolls sending yeah. you emails. And I was, I was about to say that I genuinely hope that not another episode goes by without another cartouche correction. Like There's going I, to be an Egyptian scholar. I would out. like I would like for this to become a running theme until the end of time. Like yeah. every week we'll have an update from another That's expert. Right. Way it just keeps know, getting deeper we'll and deeper. Call, we'll, we'll call the segment Saturday morning cartouche because the show airs on Saturday. <laughs> Bust out your cereal. We have another error that we have to correct, but we're going to get an expert on to help us do this. So let's go to that segment right now. So, guys, we have a correction to make from uh, last week's show when we were talking about Malaysia Air. Uh, I made the comment, and I think it was generally agreed upon, that if a big commercial jetliner, if it turns or banks beyond a certain angle, it gets to a point of no return where it can't recover. And we got a few emails pointing out that that is not true. We, we decided... To uh, bring on an actual real-life airline pilot to straighten us out. So we have our, our good friend, Joe Anderson, on the show with us. Joe, welcome on to the Skeptics Guide. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. You know, I got Joe! to tell you. Hey! Oh. <laughs> What's shaking? What's shaking? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I was hoping you guys would apply a filter. I'd be like, uh... Yeah, ladies and gentlemen, uh, welcome aboard. Anyway, guys, listen. Oh <laughs> <Well>, yeah. <laughs> hey, yeah, Joe. Why do pilots always start every sentence with "uh"? Because because an awful lot of them are very boring. That's why. <laughs> That's yeah. it. That's it. We're not all like Quagmire, you know. So uh. I dream for the day that I am on a flight and I hear Joe Anderson's voice come over the intercom. I would be so happy. So happy. Oh. I would get so arrested because I would like dive on him in the cockpit. <laughs> I would- yeah, that actually would get you arrested. All right, so Joe, so straighten us out. First of all, you are an actual pilot, right? What what airline do you fly for? Can you tell us that? I I am. You know what? Uh, I, I talked about jailer. The thing is, is that I'm I'm also a manager and I manage people. And and one of the things we ask is that we ask people to say it's their opinion versus you know them them representing what uh, says with the company. I'll tell you. But uh, I actually work for SkyWest Airlines. We're the third largest airline in the world in terms of uh, airframes. We uh, we fly for other airlines. We fly for about five other airlines right now. And you can fly the big boys like a 747? Well, actually, I can't fly 777 or a 74, but not because of uh, experiencing it. I don't have a typewriter. You're just not very good? That's clearly it. <laughs> That's clearly it. Yeah. <laughs> 
Are there like special certifications for every type of plane? There are. Once you get into uh, planes over about 12,500 pounds and, and into, into jets, Every aircraft requires a specific type rating. So you could be the most experienced uh, 747 captain in the world, and if you're going to go fly a 777, you've got to start all over in terms of getting that rating. So we, we go yeah, through that. That makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. That's good to hear. Glad, glad about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as, as a frequent flyer. So <laughs> tell, tell if, if you're flying a plane and you rotate, or you bank the plane, there's, you can't go too far. No matter how far you bank the plane, you can always get out of it. Is that what you're telling me? Well, you know, when I talked to Jay, he actually, you know, asked me the question if that was true or not. And I certainly was not pedantic enough to call, email you guys or tell you that what you said wasn't actually correct. It could be true, but typically, let's say, for example, if you were at a high enough altitude and, uh, you know, at least say 20,000 feet or so, because you can get into descent rates, will actually, Sometimes the, the altitude you start at can be a, be a real problem. But if you're, you're at a cruising altitude, say 35,000 feet, and let's say you did it on purpose. Let's say you pointed the nose at the ground and uh, you wanted to do that for some idiotic reason, you could recover as long as you throttled back and didn't exceed the safe airspeed for the aircraft for too long. You could absolutely pull out and level off and you might damage the plane a little bit, but, uh, it's not unrecoverable. The real problem you get into is if you don't have enough altitude, because when you, as you're as you're pulling out, the amount of g forces you're putting on the aircraft is is too much than what's rated for. Now they're always over engineered, you know, to some degree. But uh, the other problem is is that there's something called mock tuck, and it's something that was discovered during World War II. What happens as you're diving down, or as as the air that's separated over the airfoil and produced lift? The air of the upper surface has to go faster and it can actually approach the speed of sound and actually exceed it even though the aircraft's not going faster than that. Well, as you go faster, the center of pressure that's lift essentially that's on those wings starts to move towards the back. It moves towards the aft. And if it goes too far back, what these early pilots found, some of the dive bombers like P-38s and some of the Messerschmitts found out that their controls locked up. And the reason why was that the elevator didn't have enough authority or enough of a force to, to raise the, the nose. There were some accidents, some crashes early on, you know, back in the, in the thirties and forties. And, and in fact, uh, the way they get around it was, uh, when Jaeger first, he was the first guy to officially break this piece of sound when we were paying attention. What happened? He had an electrically controllable, the whole surface of the, uh, of the tail it would actually move and would allow him to reconfigure that. On modern aircraft, we figured those kind of things out. We know that something called mock tuck exists. In fact, every modern airplane for, for a long time, for probably 50 or 60 years now, has something called mock trim that automatically senses the, the, the percentage of the mock speed you're at and will adjust the trim to allow and to overcome that. Awesome. Yeah. So, all right, there, I, in my subsequent research, I did find that there was China Airlines Flight 006. Are you familiar with that? February of 1985. Absolutely. Yeah. And wow. that, Whoa. according to the records, it, it was in a direct down, 90 degree straight down nosedive and pulled out and just damaged a little bit of the tail fin. 
Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, if, if you noticed, now, it wasn't clear to me whether or not the, the throttles had retarded. In other words, I don't know if when they went over, if they were still making, you know, full power with the engines or what, or a cruise power setting. But essentially what happened was the 747s, as most people know, have four engines, and they're at a high cruising altitude. I think the number four engine, uh, if you start on the left-hand side as you're sitting in it, the engines are numbered from, you know, one through, you know, however how many. The far right engine, the, the outboard engine quit. And of course it's producing less, less thrust and, and less, you know, lift on that side. Not really lift, but, but we'll call it thrust. That's a whole other conversation. But, uh, at any rate, yeah. so that the autopilot starts compensating for it. And all you have to do is, uh, if that side is producing a little less, uh, a little less thrust, well, that side's going to tend to drop. So the autopilot would, would sort of, it's called trimming. And what that means is it puts in a sort of a pretense uh, it, it force into the into the yoke into the thing we call the yoke that we steer the airplane with that your hands are on and uh, to the left and when it reached its limits it cut off and the plane did this instant roll to the right and and the problem is is when you when you lose your vertical lift like that and you, you're just going to go straight down and and that's what happened and they, by the time they recovered and they pulled up uh, they exceeded some of the limitations of the aircraft so. Let me tell you about the next one I want to talk about, though. Okay. So this is what – when I made that comment that if you go too far, you can't recover, I wasn't making it up. I was basing it on something I saw on Nova. This is a PBS Nova special. I actually was able to dig up the special that I saw. It was Mysterious Crash of Flight 201. You familiar with that one? This was a 737 out of Panama. And what what the investigation found is that the there was a short circuit – in the instrument, and that caused the uh, the instruments. The I guess it's the altimeter. It the one that shows you where you are in relation to the horizon. Yes, that be the artificial yeah, so horizon or the attitude indicator. Attitude indicator. So it indicated falsely that the plane was listing to the left. So the pilot compensated by by listing to the right, by banking to the right. And he just kept doing that until he got to an angle of 80 degrees. And then the show said, and at that point, there was no recovery because the, the, the plane could not recover from a bank at greater than that angle. So that's what I was basing my statement on, a PBS Nova special. So, Joe, are you telling me that Nova was wrong, that they misled <laughs> me? Absolutely. <laughs> I, you know, okay. I... <laughs> Uh, I grew up on Nova. Let me let me tell you something. The FAA, when you train to become a pilot, either a private pilot, civilian, or anything, they have these references that you follow, and uh, they're listed. If you're going to flight instruct, you're supposed to follow these particular references, these official guidelines. You can use aux- uh, ancillary sources and auxiliary sources, but you're supposed to use the primary source. Well, the primary source for a long time listed the primary force of lift as Bernoulli's principle. It also mm-hmm. sit, talked about this thing called the equal uh, equal transit times. And I think you guys may have even mentioned on the show one time a few years ago, but, but the, yeah. the, 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 it was completely wrong. It is completely wrong. Yeah. If the FAA can't get it right, then uh, I, I have no doubts that, that NOVA messes some things up every now and then. Okay. Well, Joe, this has really been fascinating. Thanks for straightening us out and giving us the straight poop. Oh, Steve, you're great. I, I, I got to take one last opportunity. It's been almost nine years. The very first show. I, I listened to you guys within a week or so of your very first show. Loved it then. Loved it ever no. since. But, but, uh. How, but, how did you know we existed way back then? I, I'll tell you why. <laughs> I'll tell you why. Because I, I, actually, I had just started working for the airline. I was living in Salt Lake City, actually. And I was, uh, I think Reginald Finney. I, I'd found him online. He had the, one of the, uh, I can't think of Infidel his, guy. Infidel guy, exactly, yeah. Yeah. And I, I listened to some of his stuff, and I would just, 
I would just do searches for for creation debates and, and skeptical stuff. And uh, I came across the Ness, and I heard Phil Plate talking about some stuff. And I, I'm telling you, within a week or so, I heard about it I, on a forum or something. I don't remember. But, you know, what I wanted to say was within the first 15 minutes, I was hooked uh, you know, first from that really, really uber sexy uh, hello that Bob gave, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. Why I did it? it. You know, I love it. It is an instant classic. It was. I, I was hooked. I, I have a non-sexual man crush on you. Trust me. Uh, so, <laughs> but, but you guys mentioned that you had a family member, or or you knew somebody who was a pilot and was just not skeptical at all. Well, you know, I was screaming. Damn it, you know, we, there are those of us who are, so I, if nothing else, I'm glad I come on and show you guys and tell you guys that there's at least one of us pilots out there who, who are skeptical and, uh, actually have, have, have a nice baloney detection kit, you know. All right. Well, thanks for coming on, Joey. Really appreciate it. Guys, thanks again. Anytime. Glad to help out. All right, guys, we have to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors, Hulu Plus. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of Hulu Plus because where else can you see such awesome TV shows and movies like UFO TV Presents, The Mysterious Stone Monuments of Markawasi, Peru? You know, it's funny. I've caught my younger daughter binging on Family Guy without any input from me. She just Uh found Family Guy and Hulu Plus and Uh watching all the episodes, (laughs) including the Star Wars episodes, which you have to watch if you haven't seen them. Oh, yeah. Those are epic. You'll also get access, guys, to a collection of ad-free movies and kids' content. And for only $7.99 a month, catch up on current shows, binge on old favorites, or catch a great movie. Stream as many TV shows and movies as you want, wherever you want. And right now, you can try Hulu Plus free for two weeks when you go to HuluPlus.com slash SGU. That's a special offer for our listeners. Yep, HuluPlus.com forward slash SGU. You get an extended two-week free trial. All right, guys. Well, let's get back to our show. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine and one fictitious. Then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one they think is the fake. Guys, scoop me two weeks in a row. You can rely on my ignorance at all times. All right, here we go. Item number one. A new study finds an inverse relationship between years of playing high school and college football and performance on cognitive testing. Item number two. Scientists discover plants that can come back to life after 1,500 years frozen in the Antarctic ice. And item number three, a new genetic analysis shows that while sea anemones are animals, they share certain genetic features in common with plants. Brian, as our guest, you have the privilege of going first. Well, first of all, having grown up in Texas, I find nothing, nothing whatsoever implausible about a new study finding inverse relationship between years of playing high school football and performance on cognitive testing. Friday I mean, night lights. This is, this is not even a joke. Like I refuse to watch Friday night lights because all my friends, I was, they're like, you should watch it. I was like, I lived it. Why on earth would I want to watch it? And only after watching it, did I realize that my point of view was represented on this show of not understanding this infatuation with high school football. So I totally believe that one. Uh, scientists dec- discover plants that come back to life after 1500 years frozen in the Antarctic ice. Uh, I don't see any reason that that wouldn't be because you, what you got like goldfish that freeze over for a season and then you thaw them out. This is just that times a lot. Although knowing you, 
I think you might, <laughs> there might be wiggle room, like maybe it's 150 years or, or, or 11,000 years and you just tricked me with 1500, but I, that seems plausible. A new genetic analysis shows that while sea anemones are animals, they share certain genetic features in common with plants. That is totally plausible because I know there are creatures. I've, I know there are some creatures that are partially fueled by sunlight. I don't, I don't think it was a sea anemone. I'm going to say that that's the fiction. The sea anemone. Sea anemone, right. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Right? I see an anemone. <laughs> yeah, with fronds like this, who needs an emony? I was gonna wait till the end, but Evan jumped the gun. So Evan, so, you well, go next. I, I can't go. Ah, crap. All right. Playing high school co- and college football and performance on cognitive testing. An inverse relationship. Talking about a correlation, you know, certainly because you're banging your heads around on the field that that's gonna uh, reflect itself negatively on your on the testing that you do. Seems reasonable, but we'll see. The next one about plants that can come back to life after 1,500 years frozen in the Antarctic ice. So it's tricky. Come back to life after 15 years frozen. Well, just because they're frozen doesn't mean that they're dead. Isn't that right? I mean, they're in some sort of stasis, no? So coming back to life, is that an accurate description of what's going on here? I'm not really sure about this one. They were only mostly dead. Exactly. The last one, sea anemones. Are animals. Ah, they share certain genetic features in common with plants. So I'll agree with Brian. I'm going to say that the one about the anemones is the fiction. Okay, Jay? Righto. Um, I'll take them backwards. So the one about the sea anemones. Um, <laughs> Anemone. <laughs> I, I like sea anemones, though. Don't, like, don't just people be who so just pedantic. dump trash. <laughs> you guys. I, I call them like I see them. These <laughs> bastards, these little sea enemy bastards. <laughs> Where do we they get swim them? around like they know what the hell, like they know what time <laughs> it is, but they don't even realize it. They're not even really alive. They're half plant for crying out loud. Plants um, are alive and um, sea anemones don't swim. They're attached to the ocean floor, but keep going. You can't prove either of those things. Yeah, but two anyway, negatives equal um, positive, Steve. So Thank Jay, you. So Jay's the ahead of the relationship game. here. Yeah, my anemone's um, an enemy is my friend. Right. <laughs> Look, my sea enemies can fight both mammals and plants. So I think that one is science. They swing both ways is what you're saying. They do. They do go both. They pull the old hookabuck on each other. So the scientists who discovered plants that can come back to life after being frozen for a hugely long time. Sure. Of course. I mean, there's got to be a plant out there that can do that. And I agree with what Brian said. Like there's all sorts of animals that can get frozen and come back. Why can't a plant do it? So I believe that one. I don't think the, the first one is science for uh, for one glaring reason, and that's because I don't think that people get as hurt during, you know, the, uh, like a high school or college football as they would in the pro leagues just because of the, the massive difference between the size of the people and how hard they play and everything. You know, although people do get injured playing the game, I don't think that there's a lot of cognitive problems going on. So I think that one's fiction. Okay, Bob. All right, anemones are animals. I mean, certain genetic features in common with plants. I mean, we, I think we do as well. I mean, that's just ho- so hopelessly vague. Well, because, um, let me clarify since you're the first person to bring do. up that point. Obviously, they share features in common with plants that they do not share in common with all other animals. Otherwise, there would be no point to that statement, right? So this has to be things that they share in common with plants, but not animals, even though they're an animal. That's the point of that statement. Well, thank you for clearing that up. Got it. <laughs> No, I don't know what to think. Uh, science, ah. 
Number two, uh, <laughs> yeah, fifteen hundred years frozen plants. Yeah, I mean, I can't remember ever hearing of a plant. I've heard of frogs and microorganisms and tardigrades and, but I've never heard of a plant. And I don't, I don't and I don't know what to make of that. The first one um, about um, football. Yeah, I mean, this one just seems too obvious to me. Yeah, they're incredibly strict about uh, guarding for against concussions in football. All right, I'm gonna go with I'm gonna go with football. All Fiction. Right. All right, Rebecca. So they're two and two, and everyone believes in the frozen plants. Uh, so. so I'm the tiebreaker, huh? Yeah. Yeah, the playing football thing. I think I've been won over by Jay and Bob because there have been so many safety regulations put in place in the last 10 years. Like, I'm one of those old farts who's like, they don't even let kids play with jarts anymore. Those, like, lawn dart spears <laughs> that you can just throw at people that were, like, those you know are what dangerous. Dangerous. <laughs> like, like, how dare they? Um, they wrap kids in bubble wrap before they go on the field. So I'm going to go with the football one as being the fiction. Okay, so you all agree on the middle one. You all agree that scientists discover plants that can come back to life after 1,500 years frozen in the Antarctic ice, just like the thing. <laughs> yeah, oh. nobody, exactly like nobody made the obvious analogy. Would you believe that prior to this, the record for the time frame over which a plant has come back after being frozen in the ice was 20 years? Wow. Wow. Whoa. Hello. Wow. But this one is science because they did find Yay. Antarctic moss that was frozen for. Uh, I knew it must have been 1500 years. Thing. Yeah, moss is a plant. Yeah. But this barely. is interesting. This has, this has some interesting implications though because, uh, the question is, could plants have survived a glacial period from one to the next, you know? You figure they'd have to, right? Well, but not necessarily. <laughs> they they could have had to get you know to come from those or equatorial regions that never froze, but it's possible that the plants could have survived and just started uh, reproducing and growing right as soon as the ice melted. But this you know fifteen hundred years isn't long enough for that. That would need tens of thousands of years. But you know what? I think if moss can survive fifteen hundred years, it probably yeah. could survive fifteen thousand years or yeah. thousand years. So it makes it a lot more plausible that plants could have survived from one glacial period to the next. Cool. Yeah, you know, yeah, so it's pretty cool. All right, should we go to number one or number three? Number three. Uh, three, because uh, you say three. the word anemone. A new genetic analysis shows that while sea anemones are animals, <laughs> are aminals, they share <laughs> certain <laughs> genetic features in common with plants. Uh, Evan and Brian think this one is the fiction. Everyone Hold my hand, Brian. This one is... I'm is Say science, it. <laughs> and this one is... Say it. Science. Yay! Yes. <laughs> Sorry, Brian and Evan. So this is, you know, because we could now do genetic analysis of all sorts of things, you know, we could learn lots of stuff. Uh, sea anemones are, they do kind of look like plants because they're sort of stuck to the floor of, of the sea and they have these fronds, you know, but, but they are animals. They are absolutely animals. The headline of the article, I think, is misleading. Sea anemone is genetically half animal, half plant. Mm, I don't think I would have summarized it that way. <laughs> uh, but you know, Can't you see Steve saying that as he's looking at his computer? Hmm, I don't think I would have summarized it that way. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Out loud. To, to what I was lose. really yeah. thinking was, could I get away with it, making that the science or fiction? And no, I, I was nice to you guys. Um 
So they, what they found was that the sea anemones have as much complexity in their gene regulation network as do higher, quote-unquote, higher animals, uh, which is interesting. So they're, even though they're considered, you know, a simpler life form, they're really genetically not a lot simpler. But, you know, but it, which does actually make sense from the point of view as they're just as evolved as anything else that's alive today. They have just as much evolutionary history behind them. So they, they share this, uh, these regulatory genes with all other animals, which makes sense because they are an animal. However, uh, have you guys ever heard of micro RNAs? Yeah. Yeah. I have a friend who studies them. Yeah. They're pretty, they're pretty cool. Uh, I haven't and I'm not ashamed to admit it. <laughs> MicroRNAs are short regulatory RNA sequences that can bind to target RNAs and inhibit their translation or read to or lead to a dissociation of the target RNA. So in other words, they're little snippets of genetic information. You know that the the genetic uh molecule comes in either RNA or DNA. DNA is basically where the the genetic information is stored in the nucleus and the RNAs which are single stranded run around and do all the work. You know, they, they make the proteins and messenger RNA and all that stuff. So these, these micro RNAs are little pieces of RNA that essentially regulate the activity of genes. Micro RNAs between plants and animals are different from each other. And they're, they're different enough that, um, scientists assumed that they arose independently of each other. They don't have a common ancestor, that they're just completely independently evolved kind of things because they're just so different in all the little details about how they work. So, very surprisingly, sea anemones, their micro RNAs work more like plants than like animals. The convergent hmm. evolution then? Probably not. So now they're saying that that probably comes from a common ancestor between plants and animals that are conserved in the sea anemones. So if you go way, way, way back to a common ancestor between plants and freaking animals, that's far. That's like 600 million years in the, in the past. Mm-hmm. You know, that the sea anemones branched off there, you know, and, and that they retained this micro RNA pattern that's more typical that was, what that was retained by plants and, and then, then other animals subsequently went on to develop a different micro RNA system. All of this means that a new study finds an inverse relationship between years of playing high school and college football and performance on cognitive testing is the fiction because the new study found no link between years of football played and neurocognitive function in adolescent athletes. So this was, this is good. Yeah, definitely good. What this study essentially shows is that there isn't a relationship necessarily between just playing a contact sport and cognitive impairment. But that doesn't mean that people who have head injuries and concussions don't suffer cognitive impairment. It just means that playing a contact sport in and of itself does not cause this, at least measurable by this study, does not cause this damage. So good job, guys. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> oh, this thing's rigged. <laughs> nah. Sorry, right. I got to hang out with Brian. So yeah, yeah. That, that was <laughs> Brian, before cool we side. do the quote, 
tell us uh, a little bit more about your show because people can still watch this online, right? Yeah. As a matter of fact, if you Google hacking the system and if you, if it doesn't show up immediately, then add National Geographic on there, but it should come up immediately. At the very least, you can see a whole bunch of clips of these individual hacks. But if you have a qualifying cable provider, you can watch the entire episode on National Geographic's website. But hacking the system is all about uh, clever stuff, like ways to beat the system. Everything from how criminals break into houses to how you could talk your way out of speeding tickets. It's uh, it's a lot of fun, and I like it because it's so dense. Like every 30 seconds, you're getting a new tidbit. that you're like, no way. Does that actually work? And some of them turn out to be real. Some of them not so much. Have you ever oh. talked your way out of a speeding ticket? Oh, my God. Of everything in the show, that is the one that has been the best researched by me personally because for keep in mind for 10 12 years i toured all over the united states and when you drive that much you you know you can't help it you get pulled over for a whole bunch of like doing well, you know chicken you chip like you know, five or ten it. miles over the speed limit <laughs> well okay yes you, you, you can <laughs> but, help <laughs> Uh, almost <laughs> always it was a case of like dropping from 45 to 35 and you don't notice or whatever. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, but in yeah. that case, like it was, it, you start to build up an actual routine because the thing is like cops, they get, they get people crying all the time. They get excuses all the time. What they very rarely get is somebody relaxed, confident and who makes them laugh. And so eventually I sort of built up a whole routine. A friend of mine, magician Mike Super suggested that, uh, that when they ask for my insurance, I say, well, I don't have that on me, but I'm told that this will help and then hand them a uh, get out of jail free card from a Monopoly set or something. And, uh, you know, we, we, we give a whole bunch of these little tips. And uh, if you here, here's what it boils down to is I've never had a time where I made a cop laugh and then he gave me a ticket afterward. Now, Brian, I actually got a speeding ticket after making the cop laugh. But let me give you the context of that. I got pulled over. I handed the, the, the cop my – this is like on – I was almost home, you know, so it's on a road very close to my home. Hand the cop my license and he laughs and he said uh, – he basically, he had just pulled over my wife five minutes before. <laughs> no way. Awesome. Get her a ticket too. <laughs> That's amazing. Cause, yeah, so he still both, ticketed you? He did, but – yeah, I think he knocked it down. So I'll, I'll put whatever, you know, a lower <laughs> amount. And then, of course, now I get home. I know my wife just got a speeding ticket because the cop just told me. <laughs> so I had some fun with that. But not that we lie <laughs> about that sort of thing, but it was funny. Brian, I saw Brian's show. I really loved it. It was really, really I interesting. It. I loved it. No, but it was, it was really <laughs> interesting. I mean, it, it, it tickled a few different things in me, like the geek in me loved it. I also loved, you know, the fact that you were coming from a scientific perspective as much as possible. I picked up on a lot of that, which I, I appreciate, of course. And you're just fun to watch, dude. I have to admit it. Dude, that is like the best thing I could possibly hear. Thank you so much, man. <laughs> Group. <laughs> All right. Jay, do you have a quote for us? I do. It's a little bit longer than normal, but it's good. So wait it out with me. This is a quote sent in by Colton Baker. And uh, he's from Fayetteville, R. Because those are the letters of the state that he's from. <laughs> and okay. this, this is a quote from Professor Stephen Hawking. The discovery of a complete unified theory may not aid the survival of our species. It may not even affect our lifestyle. But ever since the dawn of civilization, people have not been content to see events as unconnected and inexplicable. They have craved an understanding of the underlying order in the world. Today, we still yearn to know why we are here and where we came from. Humanity's deepest desire for knowledge is justification enough for our continuing quest, and our goal is nothing less than a complete description of the universe we live in. 
Uh, I just love that. And that, of course, is Professor Stephen Hawking. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Steve, I just found out that Katie Coleman, who is a chemist and an astronaut who uh, you may recognize her picture. She has that recent picture of her uh, in the observation deck of the ISS. And she's going to be at Nexus, and NASA gave her their approval, so it's really cool. Like, we had to go through this approval process, and they wrote us back finally and said she is okay. So <laughs> she's coming to Nexus. I'm really excited. I, I can't wait to talk to someone in person that was actually launched into space. And while Nexus is coming up in just a couple of weeks, the conference, the next skeptical conference after that is the amazing meeting, TAM. Uh, TAM 2014 is going to be July 10th to 13th in Las Vegas, Nevada, and registration has just opened up, so you could be one of the first people to register. And we have the usual SGU stuff going on. So the SGU gives a live uh, performance, a live show on the main stage. Um, I'll also be doing a science-based medicine workshop and panel. And, the Jay, you know what the theme is this year? No, I actually don't. Skepticism and the brain. It's basically the, the conference for Steve Novella. <laughs> it basically is right in my crosshairs. So I'll, I'll be giving uh, an individual lecture as well. And uh, the SBM panel will be focusing on, you know, the brain as well. Uh, and, but there's going to be awesome list of uh, speakers. The keynote is somebody that I've been dying to interview for a long time, Daniel Dennett. Oh, who cool, is cool. A, a philosopher of consciousness. So we also have. Elizabeth Loftus, Scott Lillianfield, Carol Tavares, Sally Sattel, Richard Wiseman is coming back. I love him. And we're doing the SGU dinner and auction. If you remember last year, we had actually, we, we switched it up last year and we did yeah. a, like kind of like a game show that everybody that attended was involved in. Yeah, we're going to do that again. We're going to do a game show and the winner gets a TAM experience, you know, which is like a thousand dollar value. And I also worked out a special deal with the JREF for our listeners this year. When you register, you can use a, a special SGU discount code that will give you $25 off registration. The password is. The, and the password is. <laughs> the secret code is SGUTAM2014. SGUTAM2014. So use that code when you register for, for TAM and you'll get $25 off. Now, there are other discount uh, types of discounts. Like if you're a student, you get $100 off. So you'll be using that code. So if you're using another code to get a different discount than the SGU one, you can still indicate that you were referred to TAM by the SGU, that you heard about it on the SGU. Uh, please take the time to do that if you register for TAM because we track those sorts of things and it really is important information for us to have. So, But of course, anyone can use the SGU TAM 2014 code and get the $25 off and also that will in, that will show your support for the SGU and that you refer to TAM from the SGU. We will have more information about TAM over the next couple of months as new speakers are locked in and new events are locked in, but this is always the big awesome skeptical conference of the year. We love going to TAM. It's we meet so many people. We love me, uh, meeting our listeners. We will have a table there. We make ourselves as accessible as we can throughout the meeting. Um, and also this year we are going to have a private meeting with our with SGU members. Uh, so keep if you're if you are an SGU member, keep an eye out for that. I'll be sending an, an email about that once we have the details firmed up. Oh, and of course, one of my awesome friends, George Robb, is going to be emceeing again this year, and he's 
epic on stage. I just love watching him. You never know. We might do, yeah, we might great. do another video with George. We'll see. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks everyone for joining me this week. And Brian, thank, thank you. you for joining us. It was yeah. a lot of fun. Oh my God. It was a blast. You're Can't really... wait to do it again. You're Thanks, awesome, Brian. Brian. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible. And now that the show's over, don't forget to sign up for your free account with Personal Capital right now. With Personal Capital, you'll finally be able to see all your accounts in one place and get a clear view of everything you own. To sign up for free, go to theskepticsguide.org and click on the Personal Capital banner, or go to personalcapital.com forward slash SGU. Personal Capital, less fees, more Gs. And don't forget that this episode was brought to you by Hulu Plus. To sign up for your free trial of Hulu Plus and start watching your favorite shows right now, and for an extended free trial, go to huluplus.com forward slash SGU, or just go to our homepage and there will be a link right there for you.